Hey everybody, it's Greg. Episodes of the QNT podcast were recorded between June and September 2022. All mentions of the Patreon are now obsolete as that channel no longer exists. The information, however, is still relevant and hopefully you find some value in it. Enjoy. Yo, 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 what's going on, everyone? This is Greg Blunt, and welcome to episode two of the Quant Podcast here on Patreon. This recording is taking place on June 21st, 2022, and I'm very excited for today's episode. Our guest today is someone who I've been in contact with now for a few months and has been extremely generous with his services and knowledge. For a long time in the community, there was a lack of clarity around the status of Quant's patents. Most people that I came across were convinced that they'd been granted, but I found a few other people that were saying, no, they haven't been granted yet. And so I tried to do some of my own research, but I was having trouble finding any evidence either way because it's very difficult to navigate these patent websites despite everything being public information. You really have to know what you're doing and what you're looking at. And so Devin DM'd me out of the blue one day and let me know that if I ever needed any information on Quant's patent applications, he was there to help. And so it was just truly a godsend. And so we began having a number of conversations and the contents of these conversations were so valuable that I knew I had to have him on the podcast. So Devin, thank you for joining me today. And I can't wait to get started. Yeah. Thanks for having me, Greg. Of course. So what I did in the first episode, which people liked and I found kind of cool, was instead of jumping right into the meat of everything, I just want to have you introduce yourself to the audience a little bit, but I'm not going to make you say some long speech. I would rather ask you a few this or that questions, and you can give explanation or you can just give one-word answers, but I'm just going to ask you some simple kind of this or that, it's a lightning round of sorts, and we'll see what you got. Is that cool? I like it. All right, cool. First up, sneakers or sandals? Oh, man, sandals for me. Mac or PC? I'm a PC guy all the way. Me too. PlayStation or Xbox? PlayStation all day. How about boxing or MMA? I'm going to have to go with MMA. Poker or chess? Poker, like the thrill. Chocolate or vanilla? Chocolate. McDonald's or Burger King? Oh, McD's. How about Superman or Batman? um batman i just the cartoons when i was growing up were way better <laughs> you're a cartoon guy were you a comic guy uh i didn't really not as much as the cartoon or the the comics but i grew up on all those vintage spider-man superman cartoons coming on early in the morning okay respect and then the last one is money or fame oh, man i'll take money i think most people are leaning that way these days right it's like i think fame used to be a lot more desirable and now with social media, it's like you'd rather just stay as under the radar as you can. Yeah, yeah, for sure. But let's all just get rich. So I think we're uh, we're all here to get a little bit richer. And thanks for doing that. And I, I think that just to expand a little bit more on you, maybe where you're from, if you want to share any kind of your background and how you got into the patent space, uh, what made you interested in it? and how long you've been working there, things like that. Just a little bit about yourself to help everyone get to know you. Sure, yeah. So yeah, I was a mechanical engineer from college and spent a number of years after that doing kind of manufacturing engineering, doing some automotive manufacturing engineering, some 
then got into pharmaceutical uh, engineering, which I hated. And then kind of realized each company is just pigeonholes you into their little technology blip in the universe and it can get really boring. So I was looking for a career change. And uh, for anybody who is a scientist or an engineer, patent law is an alternative career path. So I looked into that and happened to get a job with a local law firm uh, that does patent law, who just trains fresh engineers, everything about patents. So got into that, did that for two years, basically working with inventors and companies, anywhere from GE to Bissell to Whirlpool, helping them get patents. And then realized the government had uh, the U.S. patent office positions open, and uh, they were opening up some satellite areas. So I snapped up the opportunity to jump into one of the cool cities that they opened one up in and uh, went to the dark side, as as the patent people call it, and went to the U.S. Patent Office and been there ever since. So about how long has that been now? Uh, So I've been in patent law about 10 years now with eight years or seven years in the USPTO. Okay, excellent. And I'm curious, are there any super interesting patents that you've come across or situations or disputes, any kind of fun stories that stick out to you in your experience there? Oh, man. So I work in every, every um, patent examiner gets put into, uh, they call them art units, where art is, uh, is kind of what kind of subject matter you're looking at. And so I'm in healthcare business methods. So Anything from handling patient medical records to insurance reimbursement, uh, data mining and machine learning for healthcare, clinical decision support, all anything like that. Anything that's not a drug or a uh, medical device is kind of comes through me that's software related. As far as interesting stuff, I don't know, man. I, I see lots of stuff that has yet to come to light because healthcare is so slow and regulations are so, so tight. Keep an eye out for basically uh, AI to be doing all of the decision-making based on all of your data. Keep a lookout for everything to be recorded, everything to be analyzed. And that's, that's coming down the pipeline where healthcare will no longer be a, a human-to-human thing. It'll be big data all day. Interesting. And I think we all kind of have that sense that everything is going to be harped down upon by the powers that be and even the AI and just these different systems And it's interesting to hear from someone who's looking at the actual systems that are being developed and patented that that's just heavy confirmation. It also overlaps a bit with Quant, knowing that they want to help structure some of these data systems. And just touching on Quant more generally, I'm curious, when did you discover Quant? Obviously, this is going to be After you started working at the patent office, if you've been there for seven years, Quant hasn't even been alive that long. So you've already been working there. You know, maybe tell us a little bit about your entry into crypto and when you discovered Quant. Oh, yeah. So I am I'm green by every sense of the word. I had friends when I was living out west that were talking about Bitcoin and how they're set for life. And I'm like, man, I should look into that. And then completely forgot, got caught up in life. And then uh, I didn't get back into thinking about crypto until it started taking off again in 2021. So that's when I really started. Early 2021 is when I kind of started actually doing some research, had some money, things were settled. I was like, all right, I can need to do some investing. Let's check, check this out. And started, uh, started how a lot of people did, Bitcoin, Ethereum, researching all these weird projects and some of the, you know, the top 10, 20. And then um, I started seeing Quant come up the leaderboards from the $40 mark and was like, all right, what is this one? So the more I read about it, the more I was intrigued started buying a few and then i just went on a deep dive and pretty much read all of um, telegram 
uh, Council, read everything I get my hands on. I think it was it was one night right after the summer lull and everything was kind of back up again. I was just had this feeling in my mind. I was like, I got to go all in quant right now. So I woke up at like four in the morning, sold everything, put it all into quant. And then I'm pretty sure it mooned like two days later, <laughs> but uh, I didn't sell a dime and I'm still here learning more and more confident than ever that I made the right choice. That's awesome. I think we've all had that moment where we're just like, I need more of this fucking token. Like there's just something happening here. I've definitely made some purchases in the middle of the night. So I completely relate with that story. And yeah, that's great, man. We're all here in this journey together. We're still early. And even though I think most of us miss the top, my emotions right now could not define Quamphy any better. So let's take a step back now and talk about patents generally. And maybe you could give us a little bit of patents 101. What role does a patent serve for a company? How much protection do they offer, especially focused on a technology patent with regards to a physical patent? Yeah, so um, patents are a property right to an idea. So imagine like a, a deed to a house and they're very clearly defined by, you know, the latitude, longitude boundaries, the footage, all that. So you have this little specific description of what you own, and it is upheld by the government. Patents are the same way, but for inventions. So um, people file for a patent to protect their inventions. The quid pro quo is that you supply the public with a disclosure of your invention that enables them to make it and utilize it. And in return for it, if it's granted, you get a 20-year monopoly on it. So the idea is that by disclosing the idea of a, uh, behind your invention, instead of keeping it a trade secret, which a lot of the companies also do, is that people can see what you did and innovate on top of it. And then in return, you get protection from it. So you can capitalize that in, in multiple different ways. I mean, there's a million different reasons to get a patent. Just a few off the top of my head are in startup phase. It's a lot easier to get investment money when you have your idea that's patent or patent pending. There's a lot less risk of some other competitor just coming in and doing the exact same thing as you. Once you get a patent, it gives you 20 years protection on your idea, on your invention. So it's a lot easier to kind of control the development and the deployment of your technology without kind of fear of competition. You kind of think about it like without a patent, you might be really worried about getting to market first. So you have that first mover advantage. But if you get your core technology patented, you know, you can, you have 20 years to kind of roll it out in a more strategic fashion where you're not really worried about, okay, I have to be first to market. I have to do all this. Obviously it reduces competition because you can face lawsuits, litigation, and it's a lot harder to get into the space to avoid a patent. You can also leverage it for licensing negotiations. So when you're talking to big companies and you're like, hey, I have this technology, you guys should implement it, license overledger, you know, having a patent on that really dissuades these giant corporations from being like, oh, great idea. Let me just do it myself. Or I'll pay you 20 cents on the dollar for it because I could just have a firm from India reverse engineer it and do the same thing. Also, coopetition that Quant loves, you can use it for cross-licensing. If you have these two core things that are going to be needed to make the bigger picture work, you can enter cross-licensing agreements where, hey, you can use OVL or we can use this to mutual beneficial outcomes for it. 
And then um, a lot of people use them for defensive patents. Basically, you want to get that disclosure out there in the public so that predatory companies can't go and try to patent it behind the back and then sue you. So, you know, that's a risk of keeping things trade secret. If somebody else figures the trade secret out, they could theoretically go and patent it. And then something you've been doing for years, they could be like, sorry, I got a patent on it. You owe us money. So those are just five or six big reasons. It can play a big role in a company's success. Yeah. And it seems like quant is at a place where one of the reasons that you talked about kind of fits them in terms of the first to market and also protecting themselves. And they're kind of right in that, that sweet spot, right? Would you, would you agree with that? Yeah. I think they used to be utilizing them for an investment strategy to get investments. And I think they're past that now. And I think it's more for licensing negotiations and the controlling the development and deployment of it for sure. Great. So before we dive specifically into quants patents, I was hoping you could take us just a little bit more through kind of the stages that a patent goes through, because that will give some context and we can then slide quant into that scale in terms of filing and publishing and granting and kind of the different phases that they go through. What are those phases? How do they work? And how long does it normally take to go through that process? Sure. Yeah. So there's a lot of nuance to this and a lot depends on the circumstances and there's a lot of different routes to go. But just for generality, typically you'll file a patent. A company will write a disclosure with a specification that describes the invention, a set of drawings that illustrate the invention, and a set of claims that is what you want to protect as the invention. So you file that. It usually goes up to 18 months after that. It is published. You can also file so it never gets published. So you can file a patent. So you uh, will never be published unless it gets granted. But most people just uh, let them get published after 18 months. After that, everybody can see it. And typically right after it gets published, the examination is started. So that's where the filed patent application gets sent to somebody like me, depending on the technology. And it goes through the examination phase, which uh, private sector calls the prosecution phase, or all of this is the prosecution phase. Um, It's basically a, a back and forth between the attorneys that represent the client that filed the application and the examiner, somebody like me, back and forth to determine whether or not it is able to be granted a patent. Every country has different laws regulating that. In the U.S., it has numbers they use to designate them. So we have 101, 102, 103, 112. has to meet all these different definitions of law to be able to be uh, um, granted uh, an official patent. So we go back and forth. Well, I typically will pick up a patent, a filed patent application, and it'll have a number of issues, typically grammatical or just it wasn't written to be in compliance. And then there is the search, and that involves figuring out whether it's new and non-obvious. So basically, um, has anything been disclosed in the public domain that would read upon your patent saying that I could point to in a legal form and say, sorry, this has already been done. You can't get a patent on this. And then they have opportunities to amend and change it up, the scope of protection they want. And it goes back and forth and back and forth until ultimately it's either granted, they abandon it, or they appeal it to a higher court. So it's kind of the general flowchart of how it goes. Okay, cool. So if we take quants patents, we have two of them to date, right? We have the ordering and filtering transactions patent, and then we have the newer MLT patent. So let's start with the first one. 
Can you give us a little bit of background in terms of when was it filed? What does it cover and where we are in the process? Yeah, so it was filed back in December 15th, 2017. It was filed originally in Italy and then the European Union. And then they went into what's called uh, international phase, the WIPO, which is World Intellectual Property Organization, which they subsequently filed in uh, the USA, China, and Japan. And yeah, this was, this was basically their core technology patent that really covers how they're using their communication layer to facilitate everything they do. So I was kind of reading again over today and kind of gave you even more insights for like the third time reading it through. But um, basically what Quant found was that every blockchain has what they call non-essential fields in the transactions that appear in the blockchain. So for Bitcoin, it's the OP return field. For Ethereum, it's the script bytecode field. And for Ripple, it's the memos field. It's basically a way to like have data that's not essential to the transaction, basically append data to the, to the blockchain. So their whole idea was that we could utilize this with off-chain storage to be able to check the integrity of it. Basically, we could, um, we could put a transaction on the blockchain, store a, a hash of data that we want to do in these non-essential fields, and then store this full message in the correct order on an off-chain storage system. And then you can kind of really quickly go back and forth to ensure the order of things between your off-chain record and your on-chain, which is immutable. So that's kind of the basis, I think, of, of what they've kind of utilizing a lot of their technology off of. And just to be clear, again, the, the patent claims are a specific section of the patent, and that is the bread and butter of a patent. That's what the only thing that really matters, because that's what the ultimate protection, what's, what's going to be enforced and granted as a patent is just the subject matter that's in the claims. So for the order filtering, basically it monitors the blockchain messages added to a DLT of the blockchain. It'll store these transactions off-chain in the order that they were received. And these are called the kind of verification sets in the, in the spec. Later, if that transaction was not added to a blockchain, like it was maybe a fork or something went down, it can be replayed to the blockchain. And if it is added, then it can be stored on the blockchain as a pointer. And that's kind of their core thing where they can basically store these verification sets off chain. And then once they happen, they can hash that and store them on chain in these non-essential fields to have an immutable record of how it happened in the specific order it happened. So basically the claims of this order and filtering pattern are all about just monitoring a blockchain and then storing these verification sets off-chain to be used for interoperability, for security, for a number of different use cases. So the verification set that's being stored in the non-essential fields, there's a hash in there. Are you saying that what's in the hash represents the movement that it may have had on another chain? So say somebody does a transaction where they want to invoke a smart contract or something like that. They can take that and say they have a bunch of those, a bunch of different steps in that smart contract. They can store all those off chain and they can save these in a in-progress verification check is what they call them. And then once they're proposed on the blockchain, it can take time for them to actually be validated and appended as an actual block. And I think that's a lot about what they're worried about here. So they can go ahead and basically cast hashes of what they're storing, like these ones that might not have been added to a blockchain yet, but might have been proposed on a blockchain. Store these messages off chain, hash something back to the blockchain. 
once they're actually implemented. So basically they're off-chain, kind of can store the order of what's happening, even if in the case of a fork or a malicious node or anything like that. They break it down in a pretty good way of how they discovered that these non-essential fields are great for storing data, how they can use these verification sets to have the interim storage to maintain the order in case something bad happens. And then they can hash that storage to throw it back onto the blockchain so that these verification sets can never be called into question because there's proof of it on the blockchain. In a very compliant manner, anybody could go and audit their off-chain data with on-chain data based on these hashes that they're throwing back in these non-essential fields. Okay, very cool. So non-essential fields is a new term to me that I think we should all be aware of when it comes to how this technology actually works. And we can kind of dig more into that on our own time, but that's great insight. And for this ordering and filtering patent, where are we in the process? I know that Quant has applied in the US, Europe, Japan, and China. Can you quickly run us through each of those regions and where this patent stands in terms of its ability to be granted? Sure. Yeah. So the EU patent is the only one that's gone under examination phase, which I discussed earlier. They are basically in the second round of arguing. They filed a patent. They kind of got an initial search opinion, which everybody gets when they file with the EU, which kind of gives them an idea of where their patent stands. It gives them a chance to kind of amend the claims a little bit. So they did that, argued, refiled the claims, and then it went to a different examiner who currently said it's not patentable based on European Union patent rules. And we're at that stage waiting for a quant reply that should come by July the 3rd. And then for the U.S., Japan, and China, it's a little bit more simple. They've been filed and the U.S., it's been docketed to an examiner. So we should see an action on that at some point in the near future this year. Japan and China, I would also expect to see something this year, but it can be kind of a slow process and a lot of variables to slow that process down. So if it's next year, don't hold me to it, but it should be coming soon on the other three. But the EU is the only one that they've been going back and forth on so far. So how concerned are you with Quant's patent status in the EU, considering that they've been pushed back upon once or twice now? You said that we're waiting on Quant to come back with their response in about two weeks from now. Where do you feel like they are in terms of being able to get this thing done? So I think there's definitely a path with the EU. I think it's going to take some good arguments by their lawyers and some claim amendments. I am a little bit concerned with the EU. It's, they're very hard uh, patent business processes and software patents in general in the EU. They're a lot stricter than the USA. They typically treat anything that has to deal with something that could be done by a human or just general business practices as non-technical subject matter, and they don't give it any weight. So basically, in the last action, they basically, the closest prior art is a computer system that can talk to a blockchain, and they just disregarded everything else they were doing with the patent. So the, the trick is to convince the examiner that claims are of technical subject matter, technical character that couldn't be really done by an accountant managing ledgers and recording ledger data, basically. So I think we're at an uphill battle right now, but uh, I think they'll be successful. People don't understand this technology yet and equate it too liberally to older systems of ledger keeping and kind of brush it off. 
But I think as we all can see from our research into quant that they're solving something which has not been solved before. And this whole field is extremely technical. And I think in the long run, it'll be granted. It could be a long road. It could take appeal. It could take a lot of different roads. I wouldn't keep my hopes up anytime soon, but we'll know more in the next six, seven months. Okay. Well, that's not the best news, but we'll have to just keep our eye on that. So I'm interested to see how they come back in the next few weeks and just see what they push back on. I'm sure they have the same concerns as you. And so they're doing everything they can to get out in front of that and speed this up as much as possible. And how about the US? I know that we haven't hit the examiner yet, but do they generally have a more lenient policy than the EU? And what do you think our chances are there? Oh, yeah. I think they're great there. I mean, I work in healthcare business methods, which an equivalent group does not exist in the EU for the reasons I just pointed out. They just typically don't grant business method type patents. The US has a whole group of examiners dedicated to just blockchain, just this kind of technology. There's patents being granted on it all the time. I think this should have a much easier time going through the US patent system than the EU patent system. And to be frank, the US patent system is where everybody wants a patent. It's the most used, it's the most enforced, it's the biggest market in the world. That's where really the value from the patent is going to come the most. Okay. And so to be clear, when you get a patent granted in the US, you are patenting the ability to use that product with US customers. Is that what it's protecting? Or is it that US companies cannot use what's under your patent? If they got a patent in the US, nobody in the US could use, make, or sell the claim technology. So nobody could use, make, or sell anything that used the order filtering method steps, which if you think about it, if you're talking with a a network of networks thing, like what value is not being able to have the US to have any instance of OVL. So if they just protected in the US, I think that'd be enough to dissuade any other big company from implementing it. If it was just siloed to the EU or just siloed to some other region, it's not going to be nearly as valuable as if they had access to the US market. Interesting. Okay. So it not only cuts out the U.S. companies to make something similar, but also it disables the U.S. public from actually using it if it were to break that patent structure. Yeah. You can never use it on U.S. grounds in any way. Okay, great. So even if they don't get the EU anytime soon, like you say, what good is a network of networks if the largest network, let's call it the U.S., is not able to use it. So if we can get the US patent, we're in really good shape. So how about the second patent? This one is a lot fresher. I'm curious if you've had time to go through it yet. This is the multi-ledger token patent. That's not what they call it. What exactly do they call it? How does that relate to these multi-ledger tokens? And what have you learned about that one? Yeah, so I haven't got as big of a grasp on it as as the order and filtering patent, but it's called a Secure Multi-Distributed Ledger Systems. It was filed in the EU on November 20th, 2020, and it subsequently filed with the WIPO, which is the World Intellectual Property Organization, which allows you to file internationally within 30 months of the filing date. And this one, I feel like it's an extension of the order and filtering patent. So I think that like the order filtering patent is just that really core technology that kind of Overledger was built around of how to monitor blockchains, how to, you know, establish these verification sets, how to use these verification sets to order transactions in the event of forks or systems going down, things like that. And I think the secure multi-distributed ledger systems patent, the new one that is filed, is really taking that idea to the next level and use case. 
So they kind of talked about it in the order of filtering patent of how you could use these for cross-chain interoperability in the, in the latter sections of it. And this new patent really goes into far greater detail of exactly how that works. Like I said, I haven't got as technical into all the details of it, but it basically does the same monitorings, uh, same creation of these off-chain records of transactions, which they call verification sets. And then it'll basically be able to verify that instructions are in the correct order and legitimate when they appear on two or more blockchains, execute these instructions, and then you can be able to kind of store results of these execute instructions on-chain and off-chain. Basically, it will monitor for instructions to maybe execute smart contracts on two or more DLTs. It can verify these instructions and then it'll execute them and then store records of those for future use, both in their off-chain repository and on-chain. So I I think it's dealing a lot more with the use cases of the order filtering patent and expands technically a lot on how these verification sets are actually utilized. So it's kind of interesting. I need to read a lot more into it and I need to get a degree in computer science, but... uh... I think that when you talk about the expansion of the use case, that probably leads towards being able to create these tokens as well, right? So it's not just maybe logging of the data, but also because of the use case of the smart contract capability that's also added into this patent, is that what covers the token portion of it and the potential for multi-ledger tokens? Yeah, I don't think it is a token issue in patent per se. I think it is the technology behind it, which is going to allow these to function in the way they want them to. So they'll be able to monitor that certain conditions are met on two different chains, and then they'll be able to verify offline that they were done in the correct order and that everything is kosher before executing the certain smart contracts associated with those tokens. Got it. Got it. That's good that it's not just honing in on the multi-ledger tokens. That way, as more use cases come about, they have more of a broad structure to the patent. So I'm really interested to see how this moves forward. So this was filed in the end of 2020, right? And so we're at that around that 18 month point when it gets published. Does that mean that this is moving to an examiner soon or where are we in the process with this one? It's coming up for examination in the EU fairly quick. So we should see something on this in the EU system this year, I would say. In the U.S. and other jurisdictions, they have 30 months from November 20th, 2020 to even file. So, you know, we could be looking at middle of this year before they even file in the U.S., Japan, China, wherever else they decide. And then it's a pretty long wait from there, too. It could be another year before we see anything. The European one is the one to watch. Anything else is going to be a while out. That's interesting too, especially with all of the stablecoin stuff that's coming around the corner. I suppose that this will be here before CBDCs is, or maybe lines up right around that time. So, you know, hopefully everything lines up. And of course, even if it goes live before the patent is granted, that doesn't mean that we can't push the technology forward. It just means that maybe we're not as protected as we'd like. But I suppose even if the patent is in the process, That still protects us to some degree, at least as far as somebody coming in and trying to file a patent behind us for the same stuff that won't be possible. Yeah. And I'm kind of curious on their strategy myself, because I mean, I'm not a patent lawyer per se, so I don't do litigation, but there's a lot of weird strategies out there on slowing down prosecution, slowing down getting the patent. Sometimes you even want to let the space develop even farther. So once your patents are granted, you have somebody that you can it's worth some money being like, hey, you can't do this anymore. Sorry, or give me royalties. There's, there's a lot of business 
reasons to delay a patent until the space matures a little bit more. Because you can imagine if they got it right now, they could just stop everyone from doing anything regarding this. But that might not be the most beneficial for their business. So I don't know. There's a lot of considerations. Yeah, that is very interesting to think about. And we'll kind of see, you know, we'll just see over the next few years what happens with this. I think these insights are incredible. And this is a question that we got from Don about Overledger being a public good or critical infrastructure. How do you think governments might treat something like that? Do you see Overledger as a public good? And if so, how does that get regulated or how does that fit into the larger system where you have a private company patenting a public good? I mean, I definitely see Overledger as a critical infrastructure if they achieve their vision. Public good, I'm not sure I'd give much meaning to that in the U.S. I can't speak for outside of the U.S. For examples, I mean, there was patents for the original Bluetooth technology for GPS systems. One of the most valuable patents they say ever in existence is by a, a very small company called Intertrust Technology Corp. It has patents on all of the distributed record management, distributed computing, pre-blockchain stuff. And all these people benefited greatly from their patents and they were critical infrastructure. The only way in the U.S. for the government to say, hey, this is too valuable to patent or anything like that is if it had to do with national security. There's an Inventor's Secrecy Act of 1951, which grants the patent office the ability to keep inventions secret if they're a threat to national security. And that's only reserved for like... If somebody tries to patent, uh, ha- comes up with a new way to make a homemade nuclear bomb or something like that, they'd be like, sorry, this one's this one's coming under us. But uh, <laughs> I don't see an order filtering patent or a multi-ledger system as falling into their purview. So I think we're safe on that one. And there's no precedent to withhold something that's super important to national infrastructure. So in fact, the patent system is designed to encourage that. Okay. So that makes sense to me. It is critical infrastructure, but it's not public good. And that is in line, I think, with the idea of ODAP or SAT, the Secure Asset Transfer Protocol versus Overledger, right? Where one is more of a public good, where it's more like internet infrastructure, it's open source, it's nonprofit. And then you have Overledger, which is an implementation of that gateway protocol, but it's with specific technologies and functions that is made for profit with a token by a specific company. And so, yeah, that would be more private infrastructure than a public good. So that all makes sense to me and fits within kind of the boundaries and borderlines of how we talk about these technologies. So as we move into this new space and all these new things are being created, is there something in particular that excites you about these interoperability patents? And if Quant is to get these what kind of opportunities that presents certain things that you learned or it opened your mind about the space by looking at these patents? Like, how do you think this all unfolds and what is exciting to you from Quant's perspective? Yeah. So I think you kind of hit the nail on the head with the difference between ODAP slash SAT and what Quant's doing. It reminded me of, there were inventors of the World Wide Web and People have claimed it's the most important document ever written was when the inventors of the World Wide Web renounced any rights to a patent 
and opened it to the public domain. And that's kind of how I see ODEP kind of sat working. They're not trying to patent it. They're just using that to be infrastructure. And then there's a million use cases around it or a million different technologies around it that have been patented and will be patented are super valuable. What I think excites me the most about the quant patent is that if this kind of proves, if they get it and it proves to be pivotal technology on how interoperability is run and the best way to do it, they have a guaranteed monopoly for that idea until 2037. I mean, so that's, that's just a long time to have a complete monopoly over some of the most important technology in the space. And it could easily catapult them to just being some of the most important players in the space. I encourage everybody to read it start to finish with a picture of the drawings on one screen and the spec on the other, because it really gives you a lot more insight on the, how the core functionality of Quant actually works. It's simple and complicated and elegant all at the same time. And it's pretty cool that we're able to invest in this company and that we get to kind of sit alongside and watch them do what they're doing because it's, it's pretty unique. I couldn't agree more. And I think that's probably a perfect place to wrap up. For everybody that's listening, I will link the patent for both the ordering filtering and the distributed ledger system in the description below on Patreon. And Devin, I just want to thank you so much for coming and as always being so generous with your time and so detailed and thoughtful with your knowledge. And we all really appreciate it. Hey, thank you so much for having me, Greg. I love talking about this stuff. And there you have it, folks. Episode two in the books. What an eye-opening conversation. I really appreciate Devin for coming on the podcast and educating all of us. Let's keep a lookout over the next couple of weeks for Quant's response to the European Patent Office on their ordering and filtering patent. And there should be some more action in the back half of the year as well. I'd love to hear all of your thoughts on this episode. Make sure to hop over to Telegram and let me know what you learned. Keep an eye out for a new video on Monday. And as always, thanks for listening. I love you all. Peace out.